As the latest bomb scares appear to underscore the political center isn't holding. But what about here in Texas? And what does it mean for the long term? That story and more today on the Texas Standard. Texas Standard is a production of KUT Austin, KERA North Texas, Houston Public Media, and Texas Public Radio in San Antonio. With support from Rand Group, software delivered as promised. No surprises. I'm David Brown coming to you live today from the studios of Texas Public Radio, celebrating 30 years on the air in San Antonio as the city marks its 300th birthday. We'll explore a bit of the Alamo City's less well-known backstory. Also, are Texans really as divided along party lines as the rest of the nation? Our project Texas Decides takes up that question. Also, the search for Maria Moreno and a story of a Texas-born farm movement hero almost lost to history. All that and a whole lot more today on the Texas Standard. No matter where you are, we hope you'll vicariously be enjoying a bit of the Alamo City on this October 25th. Yeah, it's Texas Standard Time, and we're on the road in San Antonio. Now, when I say on the road, I mean that figuratively, because you wouldn't want to be in the line of cars down there on Fredericksburg Road this morning, patiently waiting their turn at the window of the original donut shop. They heard we were coming to town, and perhaps in an effort to help settle the ongoing great breakfast taco debate with our hometown up the ways on IH-35, they may have accomplished their mission with a very special delivery this morning. Our technical director, Casey Cheek, had the carne guisada with the gravy inside that classic soft, puffy taco. Now, we're not saying this fight's settled, but Wells Dunbar just might. He's got the talk of Texas coming up, and there's a lot to celebrate here. 30 years on the air for our host, Texas Public Radio, and the Alamo City itself marking its 300th birthday. We'll take you way beyond the typical tale of the Alamo as we explore the tricentennial a little later in our special broadcast. Our director, Leah Scarpelli's picked out some sweet music by San Antonio artists to keep us going through the hour, see how many you can identify as we roll along. To help us get started, we're going to take a much closer look at the face of Texas politics as it stands just 12 days away from Decision Day and four days into early voting across the Lone Star State. Sharon Navarro is a professor of political science at the University of Texas, San Antonio, and she's joining us here in the TPR studios. Professor Navarro, welcome. Thank you. So good to see you. Uh, we are seeing record early voter turnout for a midterm election, many places across Texas on par with uh, uh, I mean, you know, you think about the kind of voter turnout we see with uh, presidential cycles. What do you make of all this? Uh, it speaks to an energized electorate. Uh, this is unique uh, for Texas and San Antonio because uh, particularly when you think of our low voter uh, turnout in midterm elections and in elections in general. Uh, so we are a low voter engaged state. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see once all the results are in, which constituency actually voted for yeah, a candidate. That, well, that's this is the real question, right? Who, who does this benefit? I was reading a piece in the New York Times yesterday. They were reporting that the typical pattern, at least nationwide, is that Republicans tend to vote earlier than Democrats. And then during early voting, as time goes on, closer to Election Day, Democrats start to turn out big time, especially younger voters start to turn out. And on Election Day, it's often the Republicans playing catch up. Uh, that's in the aggregate. Do you think that's uh, the sort of template we're going to be seeing play out here uh, this go round in Texas or a completely different game? Uh, so in Texas, Republicans tend to vote, come out and vote at higher rates early on. Uh, Seventy-six percent of all Republicans who identify as conservative uh, tend to go in and vote, and it's pretty difficult to to determine which uh, constituency uh, go go will go out and vote uh, once we near the election day. 
because uh, Latinos have tend tend to be uh, low uh, turnout uh, constituents. Well, you know, and, and also there are a lot of stereotypes and beliefs about the way that the Latino vote might actually shake out here in Texas. I mean, we're talking about here the fastest growing minority, soon to be the biggest potential political force in Texas in terms of sheer numbers alone. Uh, what impact do you think that Hispanic voters will have in this election based on what we already know about uh, the demographic? Well, the Latino vote, it's difficult to say. And at this point, many Latinos uh, that will vote, uh, we expect about 1.5 to actually go out and vote. Now, Beto Work had an interesting tactic in that he attempted to reach the voters who were inconsistent, uh, and that included Latino voters or those that hadn't voted in a long time. And so we will see whether he wins and if his strategy for getting out Latino voters um, actually worked. When you said we, we expect 1.5 what to vote? 1.5 Latinos to actually go out and vote. 1.5 Latinos? Mi million. I'm million. Sorry. Okay, for, uh, terrific. I just wanted to make sure because I knew sorry, we were talking. Exactly. Uh, it is early indeed. Uh, speaking of early, we're getting some breaking news here, and I'm just interested in how uh, what your reaction might be to this. Uh, the Associated Press reporting that Defense Secretary Mattis is expected to sign an order to send at least 800 troops to the U.S.-Mexico border. Now, this appears to be in response to a situation we've been reporting on quite a bit uh, in recent days on the Texas Standard, and that has to do with the so-called migrant caravan, which is now uh, moving through southern Mexico. Do you see this as a potential factor as we move toward Election Day? It's difficult to say. Issues of immigration usually fall along partisan lines. The fact that this is coming out so close to the election uh, day can only benefit the Republicans who have a hardline stance on immigration. That being said, you have sectors within both political parties or constituencies who believe that issues of immigration and separations of families are humanitarian uh, issues or human, uh, human uh, rights and privilege issues. Mm -hmm. So at this point, it'll be difficult to say, uh, but one can uh, conclude that it will only help uh, Republican turnout. Sharon Navarro is a professor of political science at the University of Texas, San Antonio, and she's been speaking with us here in the studios of Texas Public Radio. Professor Navarro, thanks so much for taking a few minutes out of your busy day to talk with us. My pleasure. From the gridlock in Washington to actual physical clashes between protesters on the streets of Portland, and now a series of what appear on the face of it politically motivated bomb scares. The political party lines seem more entrenched than ever. Indeed, as several experts told the Texas Standard just last month, the political center just isn't holding. But while the loud, divisive rhetoric on both sides of the aisle may not be pushing people to the middle, they may be pushing people somewhere else over the edge. As part of our coverage, Texas Decides, the Texas Standards' Laura Rice has our story. It's no surprise people are angry and divided. Some of the most contentious issues in politics today, things like gun rights, abortion, and immigration, get to the core of how people identify themselves and what they believe the country stands for. Individual elections, court rulings, judicial appointments, and the outcomes of bills are cast as wins and losses for either the Republicans or Democrats. David Hasley is fed up. We are tired of the BS. We want the U.S. 
Hasley drove from Garland to meet me at the Texas Standard Studios. He was wearing a red and blue checked shirt, which matched the pin on his chest that said, Unify Us. It's the name of a movement he's trying to lead to encourage civil political discourse, cooperation, and compromise. We just need to tweak it and get it back to we the people run it rather than the Republican Party or the Democratic Party, because that doesn't necessarily represent we the people. It represents a small percentage of the people, I believe. His plan? Get people to sign up online and tell him what they believe most people can agree on. Maybe things like infrastructure and education. Then he'll send that information to their representatives. How can we fix these issues that we can agree on and then build the trust so we can reach out to the things that we disagree on? And we'll have a better chance of coming up with a solution that's best for both sides. Hasley isn't coming to all this from a political background. He was in education and then left a business career to do this full time. His big inspiration was his family. You know, I've got five kids and when we'd go on vacation, just finding out where we're going to eat, you know, okay, we would cuss and discuss and we would figure out, okay, do we want nuggets? Do we want burgers? We can do that. Hasley says what he's really missing to get this done is contacts, people with a way to get his vision in front of someone like Oprah. Matthew Dowd may be just that person. He had the fireplace going at his Wimberley home the day I met him. Hi there. How are you? I'm good. How are you? While Dowd may not have Oprah's direct line, he does have serious connections in politics. He worked with Arnold Schwarzenegger and George W. Bush. He also has big connections in media. He's the chief political analyst for ABC News. And he's the founder of a movement of his own, Country Over Party. Dowd wants to see the emergence of third parties and or the evolution of current ones. There's this psychological problem right now, which is, and it's the biggest hurdle to the to getting to where we want to go, which is, is I got to pick between one of the two. And if I don't pick between one of the two, it's my vote's a waste. Getting people out of that two-party structure may seem impossible, but Dowd says this fraught political moment may be just what is needed to precipitate another big readjustment in the system. Great change never happens unless people are frustrated and upset. We've gone through instances in our American history where we have been as troubled and as tribalized as we are now. It's happened a few times, and we've come out of those better. There was the Civil War, of course, and then the restructuring after the Great Depression. But to actually get from simply Democrat versus Republican to something else in politics, Dowd says it'll take a lot of little steps by individuals. Individuals, perhaps, like Austinite Preston Waller. He didn't start a movement with a catchy slogan. He's just a voter who has long-leaned Republican but who is frustrated with the current tone. I could tell you more about where my vote is not going to go at this point. I feel I'm best off voting for the candidate as opposed to the party. If you're thinking that seems pretty obvious, think about the last time you actually did the same. Waller says he's not happy with the direction of the Republican Party, but Democrats listening shouldn't take that as a win. I think starting in a position that puts you in a different category as others automatically can put people on the defensive. Unify Us founder David Hasley agrees. One of my dreams is to have the CEO of Pepsi and Coca-Cola to sit and say, here's my Coke, here's my Pepsi, and take a sip and say, oh, I see why you like Pepsi or I see why you like Coke. The message from all three of these fed-up Texans seems to be that any change 
isn't going to come from parties or politicians, but just regular people. I'm Laura Rice for the Texas Standard. Social media editor Wells Dunbar here in the Texas Public Radio studios. How you doing there, Wells? Good, David. Good to see you. Texans are continuing to talk about the slate of bombs sent to prominent liberal and Democratic figures, including Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, and George Soros. Bombs assembled with a similar signature have now been sent to Joe Biden and Robert De Niro. On our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Texas Standard, Patricia Thomas says, Meanwhile, Trump was still attacking the media in a rally last night. This situation is not sustainable. And Barbara Terry says she's read hundreds of comments from conservatives claiming the bomb recipients sent the packages to themselves and or it's fake news. How can someone know hundreds of someone's, ignore the facts in front of them, and not use common sense to draw a reasonable conclusion? Lots of lots of heat and lots of uh, just, uh, just a, kind of a mess yeah, on social th- media this, with this yeah, one yeah, right now, This is now, the David. false flag uh, theory that uh, you were talking about exactly. a little bit yesterday. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's just one story we're following. We're also hearing from folks about midterm matters, including that Dallas Morning News endorsement of Beto O'Rourke. And here in San Antonio, some local politics as well. More on that later in the show. Yeah, uh, Texas, you surprised by that endorsement? What do you think of that or anything else making news in your neck of Texas? Tweet us, won't you, at Texas Standard. Well's back in 35. Support for Texas Standard comes from Texas Oncology, with a reminder that October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. To aid early detection, all women over the age of 40 should undergo routine screening, like yearly mammograms. More at TexasOncology.com. This is the Texas Standard, coming to you from San Antonio, home of Texas Public Radio. Big military city, San Antonio. Lots of veterans here. When they need things like wheelchairs, walkers, and artificial limbs, getting them from the Department of Veterans Affairs can be a difficult, lengthy process. The VA has had lots of issues in recent years. They insist things are getting better, but Texas Public Radio's Carson Frame tells us not everyone's feeling the progress. 24-year-old Navy veteran Whitney Harden needs help getting out of her wheelchair and into her walker. She and husband Matt have the routine down pat. Harden has a rare neurological disorder that inflames her brain and causes seizures. Doctors say it was related to injections she got when joining the Navy. Last year, she had her third brain surgery to relieve the symptoms. While it helped manage the seizures, it limited Harden's mobility. The walker is a huge part of my rehab. It helps me start to be able to get more mobilization on my own. Getting the walker wasn't easy. Harden's doctor ordered it from the VA in April but they had trouble getting one of the parts and couldn't fill the order right away. I'm just kind of used to it, I guess, at this point, to just know that I'm going to have to wait. Months later, the VA still hasn't come through. Harden ended up getting the same walker from Project Mend, a San Antonio-based nonprofit group that refurbishes medical equipment and gives it to people at a cost savings. The order took them just a few days. Right now, the VA says it has about 8,500 equipment requests that have waited longer than 30 days. Fred Downs, a prosthetics consultant with Paralyzed Veterans of America, says that's cause for concern. I'm, I'm not comfortable with that number. I, I need to know more facts. What's it composed of? What type of orders? Downs used to work for the VA and helped build their prosthetics service back in the 80s. He says there are legitimate reasons why some cases drag on. But Downs says complex cases are one thing, while bureaucratic obstacles are another, and he isn't sure which category the VA delays fall into. As it turns out, VA isn't either. They're still analyzing the data. The thing that we all worry about are those cases where a veteran, you know, needs a wheelchair. It's prescribed, and so the veteran goes home and doesn't hear anything from the VA. 
this is where you and others hear problems, is, well, what happened to it? He's still sitting home after two, three, four months, and it's not there. What the heck? Somebody's dropped the ball big time. VA receives more than 650,000 requests for prosthetic items and medical devices every month, and delays have long been a problem. VA Secretary Robert Wilkie says this year's numbers actually represent a market improvement. Across the country, last year, 64,000 prosthetic requests were 30 days old or older. We've now gotten that down to 8,500. Last year, the VA Inspector General found a host of problems with the way some medical centers were handling prosthetics. Since then, the department has changed some of its processes. They've made it easier to track equipment requests and are holding medical center directors more accountable for fulfilling them. The agency is now trying to determine how many delayed requests are acceptable. Wilkie says he's proud of the VA's progress so far. That is certainly a case where we have moved out and it shows America that the department does have the potential for agility and adaptability. Back in Texas, Whitney Harden has had to adapt too. She's making strides with her rehab and has now mastered the track at her physical therapy center. I'm doing 336 feet twice, two laps. Harden says there's a chance her VA walker will still come in. If it does, she plans to donate the one she's using now to Project Mend to help someone else. In San Antonio, I'm Carson Frame for the Texas Standard. Carson's story was produced by the American Homefront Project, a public media collaboration that reports on American military life and veterans, funding from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support for coverage of business on Texas Standard comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider, ensuring compassionate care for injuries of every size at businesses big and small. Learn more at WorkSafeTexas.com. And you are listening to the Texas Standard. Nearly one quarter of U.S. households now own a voice-activated smart speaker. Yours may be an Echo or a Google Home, but chances are if you have one, you're thinking about uh, maybe getting more. Amazon, Google, even Facebook have released new smart assistants in recent weeks, a whole lot of them, in fact, here to help us sort out what's what and whether now is the time to pull the trigger. Our tech expert, Omar Gayaga. Hello there, Omar. Hey, David. Thanks for having me. You know, we uh, we've already made the the dip into I say dip. We 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 we're just diving headfirst into smart speakers at our house. I think we use them almost like a like a home intercom. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, you dip, I dip, we dip. All, we're all dipping <laughs> into this market of uh, these home assistants, which have just exploded. And now we're you know it's October. We're heading into the holiday season, and uh-huh. kind of the hot gift item for the last few years has been you know the Amazon Echo, the Google Home. I mean, these are very very. Uh, well-selling products, and I, I don't see that changing this year. But I, I'm, what I'm sort of wondering is that, you know, there are, I mean, if you think about the fact that we're talking about a quarter of U.S. households now with some kind of voice-activated smart speaker, that leaves three-quarters of Americans uh, without. I'm wondering what's what they're waiting for here. Uh, is is Are we early adopters and we just don't realize it or what? Uh, I don't think so because you're you're seeing this technology find its way into other products. Uh, we're going to start seeing it a lot more in automobiles and other places. But I think the the new killer thing, the thing that to look for this year, is that all of these companies are now releasing versions of this with displays. Smart displays seem to be the hot new thing this year in that space of just adding a screen to this mix. Facebook's is called Portal, and it's basically uh, geared toward video chatting. Then Google came out with one called Home Hub, which is very similar, just without a camera, but meant for things like you know looking up a YouTube video or lo- seeing a visual representation of a recipe, for instance, uh, that kind of thing. And of course, Amazon has had one called the Amazon Show, 
uh, and they introduced a new version that's more larger and looks more like a tablet screen. So all of them are really pushing hard into into video and display. And and you know obviously if you're an ad company like Facebook uh, that where your primary income is ads, you're thinking video video ads. You know we're gonna shoot these video ads to people as they're doing their video chatting. So that it's it's another income stream for all of these companies. The the idea of having a screen and therefore a camera uh, in most cases, there's something that is slightly more intrusive about the very notion, isn't there? Yeah, I think we've kind of come to accept, or a lot of us you know, that are buying these products have come to accept this, having this always on microphone in your home that could be listening in uh, things, you know, devices like the Google home have a, a mute button where you can turn that off. But, you know, do you really trust that? Now you're adding video, a uh, video camera into the mix. Now what Google has done to sidestep is, is they just didn't put, put a camera in theirs. There, there's hmm. no camera in the Google home hub, but there's nothing to say they weren't, they're not going to come out with another version of this product that will have that camera for video chatting. So I, I don't know if like five years on, we're more comfortable with the idea, but it sure uh -huh. seems like it based on how these products are doing. I'm sort of wondering what, what, what the logical sort of endpoint is going to be, because if you have a small, smart screen, what's to prevent your television from becoming that big, smart screen that we're constantly sort of conversing with? Yeah, uh, c companies have tried. I mean, obviously, we uh, most of the TVs sold today have you know Netflix and Hulu and all of these smart features. Right. But people still seem leery to use their big screen TV as a as a video phone or for a, a hub hub for the home automation. So it seems like these devices that are kind of smaller and can sit in pretty much anywhere are more geared toward like controlling your smart lights or controlling your smart security, uh, doing your, the smart doorbell where you can see someone come up to your door and actually watch them as they ring the doorbell, uh, things mm. like that. I think they're geared more toward as a home automation hub, but also for things like video chatting. All right, so uh, you mentioned the holidays. Let's get down to some recommendations if you're game. Uh, wh what would you say uh, as people are thinking about possibly taking the plunge? I think the Amazon show, just because it's the second generation, it's had more time to mature. The Google Home Hub is very new, and there, there's probably some bugs to work out. All right. Omar Gallaga with some tech tips. You can check him out online at techminutetexas.com. Omar, great to talk with you again, and we'll talk again next week. Yes, thank you, David. Enjoy San Antonio. Thanks. Support for Texas Standard comes from Rand Group, providing NetSuite ERP solutions built in the cloud. More at softwareaspromised.com. From the Texas Standard Newsroom, I'm Michael Marks with a roundup of news from across the state. The city of Houston has rejected a settlement offer from Southwest Key. That's the Texas-based nonprofit trying to open a child immigrant shelter on the city's northeast side. ABC 13 in Houston reports Southwest Key sued the city back in September, saying officials are legally blocking the shelter for political reasons. The lawsuit alleges the city took a, quote, meticulous effort to block Southwest Key's plans, and that doing so is discriminatory and unconstitutional. They're seeking an injunction and at least $8 million in damages. The shelter would be used to house minors who have been separated from their parents at the border under President Trump's so-called zero-tolerance immigration policy. In a previous interview with ABC 13 News, Houston Mayor Sylvester Turner voiced concern about the city housing separated children. I don't want in the city of Houston for us to be uh, participating in a policy that I think is morally bankrupt. This is not about party. It's not about Democrat, Republican. Nothing about that. It's about valuing children. 
The city says Southwest Key has failed to go through the proper permitting processes for the planned facility. Southwest Key currently operates three other immigrant children's shelters in Houston. Famed Houston poet Tony Hoagland has died following a battle with cancer. He was 64. Houston Public Media's Catherine Liu has more. The University of Houston, where Tony Hoagland taught creative writing, confirmed he died on Tuesday. He was known for a straightforward style of writing and his witty take on modern life, as in this piece titled Romantic Moment. It is just our second date, and we sit down on a bench, holding hands, not looking at each other. And if I were a bull penguin right now, I would lean over and vomit softly into the mouth of my beloved. Hoagland also published two essay collections about poetry and received the Poetry Foundation's Mark Twain Award. That was Catherine Liu with Houston Public Media. State Representative Donna Dukes is suing the Austin American statesman, the Travis County District Attorney, and others, saying that she was the victim of an attack on her reputation. She's seeking $7.8 million in damages for defamation and malicious prosecution. Dukes was the subject of an investigation by the newspaper, looking at questionable spending. In 2017, a Travis County grand jury indicted Dukes on 13 felony charges of tampering with public records and two misdemeanor accounts of abuse of official capacity. All charges were eventually dismissed. That's a look at news from across the state. I'm Michael Marks for the Texas Standard. Support for these Texas Standard headlines comes from the Texas Secretary of State, providing voters details on required identification for voting in person at the polls. More at votetexas.gov or 800-252-VOTE. 33 minutes past the hour, Texas Standard Time. I'm David Brown. Few cities in Texas boast a history as rich and storied as the one we are coming to you from today, San Antonio. One reason for that is just how long it's been around. This year marks the city's 300th birthday. It's an opportunity that Char Miller took to by writing a book that spans San Antonio's entire existence. It's called San Antonio, a Tricentennial History. Miller is a former professor at Trinity University. He now teaches at Pomona College. Professor Miller, thanks so much for taking a few minutes out to talk with us on the Texas Standard. Thank you. You've been studying San Antonio's history for a long time. Uh, While you were working on this book, was there anything that you came across that sort of surprised you? There were a lot of things, David, that surprised me. And the fact that I was surprised also worried me. Like, I lived (laughs) in San Antonio for 26 years. How come I didn't know X, Y, and Z? But I actually also loved that. Part of what the book does is try to expose um, other elements outside of the Alamo, please, uh, that really shaped its life. Well, you know, it's it's funny that you should mention that because I do think that you're on to something. It's almost as if people think of San Antonio's history as beginning right around 1836 or so. Well, that is how most history books tend to go, right? And uh, so part of the reason for writing 300 years was obviously the, the gimmick of the celebration of the tricentennial. But that really allowed me to dig back deep into actually the 1600s uh, to think about what it meant before San Antonio was a city that the Spanish developed to give credence to and pay homage to uh, the Payaya and other native bands that lived in that space and why they lived in the space the way they did. And that really set up the book because it helped me understand one of the surprising things that I knew but didn't 
was how much this city was born of violence. Hmm. The violence not only of the Lipan Apache and the Comanches roaring down the plains mm -hmm. to attack the Spanish, but caught in the middle of that conflict were the native peoples that had made this space their own, but only to find that that space was now in conflict. And from that point on until really post-Civil War, uh, San Antonio was a pretty violent place as various groups fought, literally fought, uh, to gain control over it. And blood at times flowed in the streets, flowed in the rivers. It's quite appalling in retrospect. Why is it, uh, do you think, that this particular place became that crossroads for conflict? Was it, was it a particularly desirable piece of land? What, what, what was it about this area? Well, some of it has to do with the environment, and that's another one of the themes in the book, is to look at the space, literally the terrain, watch mm -hmm. the rivers flow through it, see its relationship to the hill country, to the southern plains, um, and to remember that natural systems really guide the way in which human beings own a place and how they live in a place. And so I think some of it had to do with those environmental factors. Some of it had to do with the way in which the Spanish nestled themselves into that river valley and ultimately built a series of missions, the very presence of which led various people to think, well, if those infrastructure is there, mm -hmm. then we get to fight over that infrastructure. And I think that's part of why the Alamo is the Alamo. Mm -hmm. It's the fact of that thing being there that gives it a almost a destination battleground. Let's go fight over that place um, because it's there. And, and it's as true before the Alamo in 36 as it would be afterwards. Um, and so it's a really interesting dynamic where nature obviously rules a lot of these choices and challenges. Yeah. But then human beings build on top of it and you start to see these layers unfold. You know, I feel a special bond to this city and I can't quite figure out why, but it's, it's one of those itches I always want to scratch when I when I get a chance to come to San Antonio. I want to go see something I haven't really had a chance to see before or experience something I haven't. Uh, I wonder, since you've now completed this 300-year overview of San Antonio, any suggestions before we leave town? Well, one of the things that I remember sort of in, the, in its inchoate stage where it's all of this conversation about the river and its extension south along the missions and north up to the museums. Mm. And I've walked the part from the museums downtown. What I haven't done is the south reach. Um, and that's a more, um, from what I can tell from friends who do it regularly, it's a much more less touristy and mm -hmm. much more local. Um, and I think that would be the place I would go just to walk it, in part because walking is such a great way to yeah. see things that you can't see by car. Right. And I think that's where you begin to see the way in which the city is starting to return to the river. And that's one of the themes in the book also, which is for many years, it was a flood control channel. It's now becoming much more of a communal space. And that communalness of it is really exciting. Char Miller is a former professor at Trinity University. He now teaches at Pomona College, and he's the author of San Antonio, A Tricentennial History. Professor Miller, thanks so much for speaking with us on the Texas Standard. Thank you so much, and enjoy the city. Support for Texas Standard comes from TCU, where horned frogs strive to be ethical leaders and global citizens, like Dr. Jonathan Oliver, who's researching solutions to reduce concussion damage among athletes. TCU, lead on. Support for Texas Standard comes from the Texas Tuition Promise Fund and the Texas College Savings Plan, administered by the state of Texas, offering a pair of plans that can help families save toward college dreams. More at savenowforcollege.org.
You're listening to the Texas Standard. I'm David Martin Davies from Texas Public Radio, and I wrote a comic book. The comic book is called San Antonio Secret History. San Antonio is celebrating its tricentennial in 2018. You know, the Alamo, that's, that's a big thing, hemisphere, all sorts of great stuff. But I wanted to look at other things that have happened here. I've been a reporter, I grew up here, and I have come across a lot of stories that I thought more people should know about. Woodlawn Pool, I grew up in that area, spent a lot of time there as a, as a kid, as a teenager, became a lifeguard. I didn't know a, an important story that had taken place there. It was in June of 1957. Six African-American children jumped into pool. You would think that would be nothing, but this is the age of Jim Crow, and this was a whites-only pool at the time. The city freaked out. The city shut down all of the city pools, and the city passed an emergency ordinance uh, segregating the pools. At the time, it was just the Jim Crow was an unofficial understanding, and now they had to codify it into law. That happened on Juneteenth. It's like, wow, this is an important remnant of Jim Crow racism right here, and I knew nothing about it. What happened to that history? Why was it erased? We need to know that. We need to remember that. That needs to be part of our conscious understanding of, of where we are. I had no idea what the reaction was going to be. I was kind of like, oh, I'm going to make this comic book and we'll put it out there and see if anyone pays attention to it. The reaction has been very enthusiastic uh, support for it. People appreciate the stories. I charge $5 a copy, so it's not going to make any money, We're losing money on it. And it's really, I just wanted to make this available. I want people to get hold of these copies, read them, and give them to someone else. So it's available in bookstores in San Antonio, particularly at the Twig, and we're making it available at Texas Public Radio, and it's now available on Amazon.com. This has been David Martin Davies with Texas Public Radio talking about my comic, San Antonio Secret History, and you're listening to the Texas Standard. When one thinks of the farm workers movement, what names jump to mind? Cesar Chavez, Dolores Huerta. What about Maria Moreno? Moreno was born in Carnes County, southeast of San Antonio, and even though she played a key role in the labor movement, too, her story has mostly been lost, until now, that is, thanks in large part to a new film by Lori Coyle called Adios Amor, The Search for Maria Moreno. Lori, welcome to the Texas Standard. Thank you. Tell us a little bit more about Maria Moreno and what led her to organizing farm workers. Well, I mean, there were actually a lot of Mexican-American uh, Dust Bowl refugees, which is a story that's not so well known in the United States. Uh, just like the Grapes of Wrath, uh, they jumped in their jalopies uh, from Texas and mm -hmm. Arkansas and Oklahoma, and they headed to California. And that was the story with Maria Moreno and her family. They came to California in 1940 and joined the migrant stream, and uh, it was actually a tragic event that changed uh, Maria's life in 1958. There was a major flood in Tulare County and uh, farm workers lost their housing and they also couldn't work mm. because the, the fields were flooded. 
they were not eligible for food, uh, food relief from the county. Her children were going hungry, and her eldest son actually stopped eating so that there would be more food for his siblings, oh, including wow. a one-year-old baby. And actually, he went blind. He went temporarily blind. And it was his blindness that came to the attention of uh, the police and came to the attention of a, of a local reporter who wrote up a story about it. And that led to the county actually changing its policy and providing food relief to the farm workers. Did she become more directly involved in the farm workers' movement from that point? Absolutely. Uh, at that time, there was a, a just a little seed of a movement starting with a group called the Agricultural Workers Organizing Committee. And uh, they were based in California. They heard about her and her tremendous power as an orator, and so they recruited her to come work for them, and she was actually the only female organizer working for AWOC, or the Agricultural Workers Organizing Committee. That is fascinating. Now, just to, just to lay the groundwork here, what specifically was she demanding, and, and, and how was she pushing for it? Well, she was looking for uh, better wages, for a living wage for farm workers, which in that day, actually, farm workers were making around 85 cents an hour. They were demanding $1.25 an hour, and that was at a time where the minimum wage nationwide was, I don't know, around $1.75. So they were looking for uh, a living wage, and they were also looking for decent housing because farm workers were living in extremely substandard migrant shacks at the time, and Maria's family at one point was living in, their, you know, the, the 14 of them were living in a one-room shack when they were out harvesting. So the kids were not going to school by and large. They went when they could, but there was no migrant ed program as there is today. Mm -hmm. And so uh, they weren't getting an education. So she was really not just fighting for a better life for her children, but for everybody's children. As part of your search for her, obviously, you're meeting, I, I gather, many of her children in the course of making this film. What was it like rediscovering their mother along with them? Oh, my goodness. I was a year into production on the film before I made contact with Maria Moreno's family. And uh, this was an opportunity for them to return to their own childhoods, but also to learn about a side of their mother that they did not know so much about. So, for example, uh, we traveled together to Carn City to go to the county registry to look for Maria Moreno's birth records. And none of them had ever been to Carnes. So it was really, it was an authentic first moment for all of us. How does such, a, such a, an amazing story disappear? I mean, she was the first woman farm worker hired as a union organizer, and yet she's not one of those iconic names. Well, I think Maria was, I don't want to say she was ahead of her time, because who's to say what was appropriate for the time? But she was a trailblazer, and uh, women were really working behind the scenes in these movements, more or less. So for one woman to kind of rise through the ranks and be elected by a very multiracial group of farm workers was truly a, a remarkable achievement. And my sense is that the union that she was working for, the Agricultural Workers Organizing Committee, they were actually uh, kind of an old school labor operation headed up by white men who had never worked in the fields. And at a certain point, uh, they decided that Maria was too independent 
she was too outspoken, and um, they decided to push her out, essentially. Now, she could have been hired by Cesar Chavez or brought into his movement, which was just about to start getting off the ground, but I think he perceived her as coming from a rival union, and so he didn't really want to have anything to do with her. Lori Coyle is the director of Adios Amor, the search for Maria Moreno, a native of Texas, Carnes County. There will be a screening of the film this Friday at the Esperanza Center for Peace and Justice in San Antonio. Lori, thanks so much for speaking with us on the Texas Standard. Congratulations on the, on the film and the investigative work. Thank you, David. Pleasure talking to you. Support for Texas Standard comes from Texas CASA, advocating for a safe and positive future for all Texas children in the child protection system. Volunteer information at becomeacasa.org. Every child has a chance. It's you. This is the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown coming to you live from the studios of Texas Public Radio in San Antonio on this Thursday. Parts of this area covered by a sprawling congressional district, number 23, covers some 29 counties in south and west Texas, a seat currently held by Republican Will Hurd, who you may remember from his bipartisan road trip with Senate candidate Beto O'Rourke. Hurd's being challenged by Democrat Gina Ortiz-Jones. Marfa Public Radio's Carlos Morales and Texas Public Radio's own Ryan Poppy get us up to speed on why the eyes of Texas and many across the nation are focused on this particular race. There's no other way to put it. The 23rd Congressional District is huge. Like, larger than many states kind of huge. Near Ryan, the 29-county district hugs the San Antonio suburbs. Here you'll find all signs of urban sprawl, shopping centers and traffic, also a few military bases. Head west towards Carlos, and the scenery changes. You'll see oil derricks dotting the desert. Ocotillo and Agave are sprinkled across the wide, open stretches of ranch land here. The district runs through and past Marfa, my neck of the woods, and stops just short of El Paso. This also includes about 800 miles of the Texas-Mexico border. It's generally speaking a fairly uh, unpopulated area, but does incorporate parts of San Antonio, which is probably the most densely populated part of the district. That's Lloyd Potter, the state's demographer and UTSA professor. He says, in all, about 770,000 people live in Texas's 23rd congressional district. About 70% are Hispanic. That doesn't come as a surprise to Carmen El Guesaval. I'm the library director for the city of Presidio. I've been here 27 years this year. Presidio is a border town west of Big Bend National Park. Carmen says a lot of the people here who come into her library mainly speak and read Spanish, so she helps them out. That's part of my job. You know, I fill out forms, translate documents for them. According to the latest census data, more than 50% of people in the district speak a language other than English at home. That's nearly double the rate of Texas. Besides being interesting demographically, it's also somewhat unique politically. In 2016, CD23 was one of only a few dozen congressional districts across the country to elect a Republican representative, in this case, that's incumbent Will Hurd, while voting for Hillary Clinton over Donald Trump. David Crockett is a political science professor at Trinity University. And if you're wondering, yeah, that's his real name. And yep, he works in San Antonio, miles away from the Alamo. Uh, and I'll sometimes joke that this is why I got my job. <laughs> Crockett says the district is finely balanced between Republicans and Democrats. It's got a lot of both. And so it makes sense to pour money into that to see if you can get more of your base out to outgun the opponent. 
This year, the millions heard and opponent Gene Ortiz Jones pumped into the race could set a new record. And speaking of money, let's look at how voters in the 23rd make theirs. Here's state demographer Lloyd Potter again. Their oil and gas are going to be very significant drivers. And if you look at that area, the Permian Basin area, its population growth has just really taken off here recently with an increase in the price of oil. You see that in places like Pecos. At last count, the rural West Texas town had a population of about 10,000 people. But that swelled in recent years thanks to the oil boom. That industry, Potter says, has made this one of the fastest growing regions of the state. And if you head towards the southeast corner of CD23, around San Antonio, you'll see the workforce varies a bit more. We deal with um, IT, technology, human resources, workforce development. Jose Arzola has lived in Congressional District 23 for the past 10 years. He's a substitute teacher and owns his own private workforce development and technology firm. Arzola, a disabled Vietnam veteran, says getting older veterans who still want to be productive back to work is his top concern. It seems like all the programs that are coming out are geared towards your Desert Storm veterans. And, and quite frankly, us Vietnam veterans still have a lot to contribute, but we are not given that opportunity. As you can imagine, in a district this big and varied, there's a lot on voters' minds going into the midterm elections. Other voters we spoke with brought up everything from border security to health care. And from the environment to job creation. And we'll have more on that tomorrow. For the Texas Standard, I'm Ryan Poppy in San Antonio, the southeast corner of Congressional District 23. And from 400 miles on the other side of the district in Marfa, I'm Carlos Morales. And you are listening to the Texas Standard. Hey, let's find out what folks on social media are talking about across Texas. Here's our social media editor, Wells Dunbar. Hi, David. Well, sticking with politics a moment longer, Beto O'Rourke's endorsement by the Dallas Morning News yeah. over Republican rival Ted Cruz has a bunch of folks talking. How about that? Yeah, the, you know, the Dallas Morning News is not quite the conservative organ it once was. It notably endorsed Hillary Clinton in 2016 yeah, and, and even endorsed Cruz's rival in the GOP primary mm-hmm. earlier this year. But it's still fascinating to see reactions to this. On our Facebook page, Carmen Allison Pagliari says, I think it's amazing and the obvious right choice. Meanwhile, Janelle Ramirez says, great, but I'd rather live in a world where newspapers don't endorse politicians. And David, Hmm. I'm seeing a lot of similar comments. Uh, In San Antonio, Mag Escojar says, be unbiased and just present the facts. Let people make educated decisions without shoving your views or inclinations down their throats. Endorsement should be a no-no, especially from news sources. That is so interesting. You know, there used to be this sort of wall that uh, editorial boards would uh, erect between, you know, the folks who did the actual reporting and, of course, the publisher who sort of represented the political views of the... uh, uh, of uh, the uh, well, the yeah. editorial board represented the political views of the publisher. That's typically the way it went. Yeah, and I think you'd still be like yeah, you know, the organizations that do endorse would still argue that is the case. Sure. But you know, we've just seen such a polarized environment here, and That's you know, the point, with the constant yeah. attacks on you know the failing New York Times to uh, turn a phrase there, uh, it's 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 interesting to see people uh, change their reactions on the concept of endorsements. Well, you know, a whole heck of a lot of attention is focused on the race for Texas uh, and the ra- the race in Texas for the U.S. Senate, but that's not the only thing on the ballot. Of course, there's no, a indeed. slate of local and 
down ballot questions uh, across Texas, including San Antonio. And, you know, this is interesting. Maybe the most controversial uh, ballot proposition, uh, ballot issues here are propositions A, B, and C. Boy, I heard a lot about that yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, brought to the ballot via petition by the San Antonio Firefighters Union in the wake of these protracted contact uh, contract negotiations with the city. So I think it would make it easier to get referendum votes onto the ballot, allow the fire union to call for binding arbitration and its future contract mm-hmm. negotiations, mm-hmm. and limit the city pa- manager's pay and terms of service. Some folks sounding off about that to us, Reed Hartman tweets us that props A, B, and C are so hot right now. We even had someone from the Chamber of Commerce come to my job and tell us why we shouldn't vote for them. They joke that I love getting bombarded by one-sided arguments. Uh, But yeah, it seems like tensions are running pretty high in Alamo City over these propositions. Absolutely. In fact, I was talking with some folks last night here in in San Antonio who were saying it's even hard to have a conversation sometimes about this because people get so upset. Yeah. Yeah, All politics are local. You know, maybe the most fearsome fight, really, in San Antonio is uh, for who's got the best taco. You know, <laughs> we heard about the original donut shop and their incredible offerings. I had dinner last night at Taqueria Data Point. These amazing miniature uh, mini tacos, these carnitas tacos, yeah. were so good. And oh, yeah, I could just go on. Uh, you know, uh, before we wrap up our big broadcast from San Antonio, we, got, we have to thank our partners here at Texas Public Radio. They've been the most gracious of hosts. Joyce Slocum, Norman Martinez, Jan Ross, Piedad, Dan Katz, Ruben Garcia, Wayne Coble, Elisa Gonzalez, and many, many more from the TPR family. We just can't thank you all enough. We're heading out to enjoy the city right now. Keep on keeping up with the news, TexasStandard.org, and make sure to tweet us at Texas Standard. I'm David Brown on behalf of the entire Texas Standard crew here at TPR in the Alamo City, back home on KUT in Austin. We sure do hope you have a terrific Thursday. Philanthropic support comes from Casey and Scott O'Hare, the Winkler Family Foundation, Lynn Dobson and Greg Woldridge, Adrian Killam, the George Huntington family, and the Hatton W. Sumners Foundation. PRI Public Radio International.